Oh, it's a pleasure to be here on this uh, nice sunny day. Today I'm going to be talking about Hebrews. I'm going to be speaking from Hebrews 8, verses 6 through 13. But to be perfectly honest, I never really liked Hebrews. Certainly I considered it a valuable part of Scripture, and I read it once in a while, and I even learned something occasionally. But growing up, it was not really one of those books I gravitated to. I found it too confusing, too much effort to understand, too many cultural references that are hard to connect with contemporary life. However, sometimes life has a strange twist to it. I have two sons, uh, I have three sons, but my two youngest, who are 13 and 12, are in Bible quizzing. And this year they are memorizing Hebrews. So I figured if they're memorizing Hebrews, the least I can do is read it again. Reading the Bible is dangerous. You never know what God will say to you or what he'll call you to. So here I am preaching on a passage in Hebrews. I'm somewhat comforted and perhaps not a little terrified by what J. Ramsey Michaels says about Hebrews in his commentary. He says, Hebrews remains something of a sleeping giant, a neglected tour de force within the New Testament canon. It's undeniably one of the most difficult New Testament books, and whether in spite of that or because of it, one of the most rewarding. In any case, here we are, so I might as well explain what captured my attention and why I think Michaels is right. So let's look at this text, Hebrews 8, verses 6 to 13. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Let's pray. Father God, you are so good to us. You call us to be your own. You call us to know you. And you have been calling us to know you through the old covenant and now through the new covenant. And Lord, we just look forward to what you are calling us to today and into the future, what you're calling to us through this passage. So I pray that you'll just speak to our hearts that your Holy Spirit will speak deep into our minds and our hearts so that we will hear what you have to say to us today. Amen. Well, Hebrews is widely understood as a call to perseverance to a Jewish church, perhaps a house church, one that likely was struggling with the cost of following Christ and perhaps considering a return to Judaism. It's a sermon rather than a letter and includes both exposition of familiar pastors an exhortation related to the general theme of perseverance. 
It aims to explain the superiority of following Christ as compared to other options. Uh, But here's what I'd like to concentrate on today. It aims to encourage the audience to maintain their commitment and draw closer to God, to know God. And I want to just summarize this passage again, because it captures what I think is going on here. What's going on here is this call to know God, but it's a call to the gospel. And you see this throughout Hebrews, this repeated emphasis on a call to the gospel. So here's my summary of the passage. God himself is questioning how we're doing things. God laid out the basic tenets of what we've been doing. However, the inadequacy of the old covenant has been made plain by our inability to follow the plan. Our inability to keep to the program has separated us from God, something that God is really not happy about. Thus, God is establishing a new plan, one that's not dependent on us, one where each of us has a relationship with God. Indeed, his laws will be written in our minds and on our hearts. We will know him and he will know us, and our many sins will be forgiven. Sounds a lot like the gospel, doesn't it? Chapter 8, the chapter that we're in today, begins with an explanation of the superiority of Christ's ministry as compared to that of ordinary priests. In particular, verses 6 to 13 address the superiority of the new covenant over and against the old. Now, I'm not going to address this movement from the old to the new. It is interesting, but I don't have time for that today. I want to concentrate our time looking at the nature of the new covenant, which the writer of Hebrews provides using an extended quote from the Septuagint version of Jeremiah 31. The language is one of covenant, and it points to knowing God. So let's explore what we learn from this passage about knowing God. First, knowing God's law in our minds and on our hearts. Now, as a child, I could never quite figure out my uncle. He was always running at full speed. In fact, even now in his mid-60s, he's always running at full speed. From my child's perspective, he never seemed to make decisions based quite on the facts. They always seem to be based on some kind of internal motivation. God called him to minister to Quebec, so he moved to Quebec, and then he got his education to minister to the people there. God called him to Argentina, and so off he went to Argentina. Strange things happened to my uncle and his family. My cousins needed bikes, and someone just gave them bikes. Someone stole those bikes, so someone else gave them bikes. <laughs> they lived in Vancouver before they entered into to, uh, the mission work, and they never sold their house. Uh, They just rented it out. Over time, the renters paid off their mortgage. Now, what's my uncle's motivation? Well, it isn't money. He doesn't have any. To this day, he doesn't have any money. It's not really rules. He'd often sacrifice them for ministry. The one that made the impression on me was uh, when he was ministering in Quebec, the people he's ministry often made homemade wine, and they would serve it to you. Uh, Well, he also worked for an organization that is one of their tenants was that Christians don't drink. He drank wine with the people he was ministering to. So it's not rules. It's not family either. He he moved his family all over North America, occasionally leaving a child behind when, you know, they got married or something and didn't want to come with him. So it's not family per se, although on an aside, all his kids uh, are serving the Lord today. And it's not fame. If I gave you his name, you wouldn't know him. Uh, He's an excellent photographer and has had his photographs in at least one internationally distributed magazine without attribution. No, his motivation is internal and intrinsic. It's a response to the work of the Holy Spirit on his heart that captured his devotion and drives all his actions. My uncle's a living illustration of God's promise that I will put my laws in their minds and write them 
on their hearts. Now, this phrase is not unique to to Hebrews or Jeremiah, which it quotes. Uh, Similar phrases we find in Romans and 2 Corinthians. Furthermore, the general idea of moving from an external system of rules to one of intrinsic motivation is throughout the New Testament. This intimate personal relationship that Christ invites us to is an integral part of the gospel. Now, this isn't a call for everyone to do what's right in their own eyes. There are many passages in Hebrews that give us specific instructions, and we're famously exhorted in chapter 12 to throw off the sin that so easily entangles us. But rather, this is a call to follow the inner guidance of God's law written in our minds and on our hearts. It's a pointer to the power of the Holy Spirit on our lives that speaks to our minds and hearts to guide us closer to knowing God, to acting as God directs. We don't depend on ritual action or structure for our relationship with God, although those things can guide us. Rather, we depend on God's inner guidance through the Holy Spirit. Well, what does this mean to us as an educational institution? Education provides lots of things, provides lots of knowledge, lots of action plans. Those are good things. But we can't know when and where to use those without attention to God to discern what is he, he is doing and where we should be involved. Under this new covenant, we gain an internal knowledge of God through his writing of his laws in our minds and on our hearts. This contrast, writes Richard Foster, between God's way of doing things and our way is never more acute than in this area of human change and transformation. We focus on specific actions. God focuses on us. We work from the outside in. God works from the inside out. We try. God transforms. To know God's law in our minds and on our hearts is to have a relationship with God that's like that of a family. And that's where our passage takes us next. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This, too, is repeated throughout the scriptures. I mean, from one end to the other, from Exodus to Revelation, we have this this covenant between us and God. So the substance of this covenant is new, and it's not unique to Hebrews. But the understanding here is important. The significance of this covenant, that this new covenant is a person-to-person vital relationship. It has a communal element. We are a people. We belong with God just as a family belongs together. F.F. Bruce explains that God is binding his people to himself with bands of love. He further explains that the appropriate analogies come not from the field of international politics, but from the relationship between husband and wife, or between a father and his children. Indeed, this idea of a covenant, of a vital relationship, might be helpful to us in this era of Facebook friends and Twitter relationships. Perhaps something that expands on relationship between something that's all about me is what we need. Something that thinks about relationship as about, in terms of a covenant. Guthrie describes it as a binding agreement and suggests maybe we think about the marriage agreement. Something that people understand, but that can help people outside of the church understand what we're talking about when we mean part of God's family. We mean getting to know God. Knowing God's law in our minds and in our hearts. Knowing God as family. This is all very personal, and this is where our passage takes us next. Now, my background is not theology, but religious studies. 
And I have many friends that study the Bible professionally. And they are very successful doing it. Many of them have a better grasp of the original languages than I do. They have read more of the support literature. They probably also spend more time thinking about it. But many of them don't know God. It's just an intellectual exercise. It's something they do for their careers that they find interesting. But their education only takes them so far. Knowing about God, knowing the text, is not knowing God. We see this in verse 11. No longer will they teach their neighbors or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Now the writer is not talking about all teaching. As we saw earlier, the writer calls us to exhort each other uh, in a number of different places in Hebrews. Rather, the subject of this sentence is teaching about God. We can all have a relationship with God. We will all know God. But are we are only limited humans. Only God can answer some questions. Furthermore, some things we need to know experientially. We can't know God from a distance. Think of the analogy of the family I mentioned earlier. Some things can only be learned in relationship. So when we're talking to other people, our aim is not simply to teach people about God, but rather to introduce them to God. In the now and not yet world of contemporary human history, there is much we don't understand about God. But this passage is referring to a relational knowing rather than just intellectual content. A knowing only possible through time spent in relationship with God. It certainly doesn't mean that we've exhausted all we need to know about God or that we ever will. But that it is in our relationship with God that all our knowledge is developed. We need to learn about God from God, not secondhand. Now how then is all this knowing possible? The law of God written in our minds and on our hearts God being our God and we being his people, knowing God personally? Well, we know God because of God. Knowing God is a result of an act of God. It is God who initiates the new covenant. God who forgives our sins to make knowing him possible. We know God because he has forgiven our sins and drawn him to himself. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Certainly the forgiveness of sins is not new. God has been working to forgive sins since he started engaging people. What difference is from the earlier experiences is the finality of the sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ once and for all for us. What an amazing relationship. Now where does this leave us? These few short verses in Hebrews taken from Jeremiah serve as a microcosm of the redemption story that God threads through human history and the whole biblical narrative. Like a hologram where each little piece is an image of the whole, the text is littered with descriptions of the gospel that point to God's work reconciling us to himself. Indeed, the writer of Hebrews does this over and over throughout the book. And so I think it's fitting that I close our time together with a quote from chapter 13 where he does this yet again. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.